Jesus was God's son, and he claims that people who believe in him and his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins have eternal life. He said, I am the one who came to live and die and was resurrected for the forgiveness of people's sins. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Christianity is different than any other faith for the one primary fact that we believe Jesus to be God's only Son. Only through Him do we have a personal relationship with God the Father. Today, David continues in his Sleuth series with an in-depth look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Today, let's look at the exclusivity of Christ. But before we do so, let's just do a bit of a review. The first week we looked at the fact that there is objective truth in the world. And aren't there echoes all around us that suggest there really is absolute truth? The echoes around us, within us. For example, the echo of creation. We see creation and its majesty. Shouldn't there be a creator who gives us absolute truth? And the fine-tuning of the universe. If the earth was just a few miles closer to the sun, we'd be burned. If the oxygen didn't exist at the levels that it exists, we could not live here. The fine-tuning of the universe, the order of the world, the design, the majesty, the beauty of everything around us. If there's beauty, there's got to be someone who defined that beauty. There's also morality. Every culture has moral laws. Well, if we have that in our conscience, shouldn't there not also be a moral lawgiver who knows absolute truth, the cries for justice, that people won't get away with the evil they've done in this world. They're accountable to the ultimate judge of this universe. The cries for justice express an echo of the heart that there is absolute truth. And deep down, all of us desire to be loved by a person, intimately, personally. If that exists within us, there must be someone who wants to place us in that love relationship with him, who is perfect love, who is the perfect lawgiver, who is perfect truth. So we believe there is absolute truth in the universe. Then the question comes, from where does that absolute truth come? And we who are followers of Jesus believe it comes through the word of God. Last week, I gave you the seven reasons I believe the scripture can be reliable. The seventh one was that we Christians believe that Jesus is God. Therefore, we must have his view toward the word of God. In the Old Testament, he quoted it constantly. If Jesus is God and he quoted from the Old Testament, therefore the Old Testament must be the word of God. In the New Testament, Jesus sent out his apostles into the world. He said to them in John 16, 13, that the Holy Spirit who lives in you will bring to your mind and remembrance all that I have taught you, kind of a supernatural promise for these apostles. And as they went out into the world and spoke to the people who needed to hear about Jesus, then wrote their letters to the church, they wrote with a sense that their apostolic authority was really speaking the very words of Jesus himself to those people and to the church. So therefore, if Jesus is God and he sent out the apostles and said their words will be his words, then the words of the New Testament written by the apostles must be the word of God. So that's what we believe. There is absolute truth. That truth is found in the scripture. Jesus is God. He's the one who reveals himself through the scripture. And then this causes, folks, many people to ask the question, are you sure that Jesus is God? And we say, yes, the scripture absolutely teaches it. John 8, verses 56 through 59, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever you hear Jesus say truly, truly, it means really listen up. This is really important. Before Abraham was, I am. He uttered the unutterable, the description of God as I am, the way God described himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Yahweh, I am. And then he said, before Abraham ever existed, he existed. That means that Jesus was saying, before the world was ever formed, I was a part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was pre-existent before Abraham ever existed. I am eternal in my concept and in my being. Amazing. They knew what he was saying. Why? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews knew what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be God. They wanted him dead. He had blasphemed to be God, and the death penalty needed to be upon him. Then in Mark, the 14th chapter, verses 61 through 64, Jesus before Caiaphas, the night before he was to face the cross, being quizzed by the high priest, Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am Yahweh, uttering the unutterable. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The prediction of his second coming, that's something a mere mortal would never predict. God can though. And the people knew what he was saying. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Why? Because he claimed to be God. And the famous verse, John 3, 16, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was God's son, and he claims that people who believe in him and his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins have eternal life. If I made that claim, folks, you would say I need to be locked up in a crazy person's prison. But Jesus did make those claims, and we're confronted as he makes those claims with these possibilities. Either he is a liar, he is a crazy man, or he's telling us the truth. Those are our only three options. Some people today want to say Jesus was just a mere teacher. He was a grand philosopher. You don't have those options. Why? He never said those things about himself. He said, I am the one who came to live and die and was resurrected for the forgiveness of people's sins. I am God. That was his claim. What will you do with this Jesus? The objections that people have at this point is what they believe is a circular argument. I say Jesus is God. The question is asked back, well, how do you know Jesus is God? Uh, The answer is, well, because the Bible says so. Well, how do you know the Bible is true? Well, that's because Jesus is God, and he said the Bible is true. Well, how do you know Jesus is God? And the circular argument continues ad nauseum. In my opinion, that which breaks the circular argument is the resurrection. The resurrection, in my opinion, proves that Jesus is God. And I will challenge all of you to think about the fact there have been people who've come back to life only to die again. There's only one man who's ever been raised from the dead, never, ever to die again. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Now, there have been people throughout the ages who have tried very hard to deny the resurrection. And here are some of their explanations against the resurrection. First of all, that the the apostles merely saw 
hallucinations. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead. He even lists a couple of them by name, Peter and James and then himself. Here's the explanation's answer, though. 500 plus people don't see the same hallucination. That, that doesn't happen psychologically. That just is impossible to occur. So the hallucination theory, theory simply doesn't make sense on the basis of the eyewitnesses who all saw a similar risen Lord Jesus Christ. Second one, people suggest the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, had they gone to the wrong tomb, they would have quickly discovered the right one because Joseph of Arimathea gave the tomb to Jesus' body, and they would have known where that was, and it would have quickly given them the right place to go. Moreover, the Romans and the Jews did not want Jesus to be raised from the dead. They didn't want the rumor about Jesus being raised from the dead to occur. So if they knew where the tomb was, and they certainly did because Pontius Pilate put guards outside of that tomb, all they have to do is to go to that tomb, produce a body, and the whole movement is over. Game, set, match, over. Produce a body, and everything ends. But they couldn't because there's no such thing as the disciples going to the wrong tomb. The third option is that it really, Jesus really didn't die. It's called the swoon theory, that he was almost dead on the cross, but taken down, then put into that cool tomb, and then he was revived, resuscitated, and then came out and went to his disciples, and they together made up the whole idea of him being raised from the dead to give his followers hope. There are so many flaws in that particular explanation. Let me give you several of them. Uh, first of all, how does a man who'd been beaten to almost an inch of his life be placed in a damp tomb, then roll away from the inside a one-ton stone that was being carefully guarded by crack Roman guards who knew that if anything happened with a resurrection that Pilate never wanted to happen, they would lose their lives, that he eludes them, then goes to his disciples. And here is the most incredible part of this theory. He looks to his disciples with his badly beaten and bruised body and says, here is your resurrection hope. You can have a body just like this one. And that causes them then to be willing to die for what they knew wasn't true and to have that kind of resurrection hope, it simply doesn't make sense. Now, every medical examiner who's ever looked at what's described in the New Testament about Jesus' death knows that when the blood and the uh, water mingled together coming out of his chest with the spear being stuck in him indicates that he was dead. Water had filled his heart, an indication of death. Fourth, the disciples stole the body. For 200 years, that's what the Jews offered, that the disciples stole Jesus' body. That's what's offered to Pilate by the Jews in Matthew, the 28th chapter. Here's the bottom line problem with that. The disciples were integrous Jewish people. They lived by the Ten Commandments, one of which is, thou shalt not bear false witness. So that means, first of all, they stole the body, then lied about a resurrection. And then secondly, they're willing to be persecuted and martyred for something they knew was a lie. As I've said to you before, people may die for what they think is true, but is really a lie, like driving an airplane into a building, and that will give you nirvana, heaven, immediately. But people don't willingly die, suffer for what they know is a lie. The disciples were integrous people. They didn't believe in lying. They wouldn't die for what is a lie. That opportunity makes no sense. 
Another one is that uh, the body of Jesus was substituted on the cross. This is what the Quran teaches, that God somehow miraculously formed someone who looks just like Jesus and put him on the cross, and Jesus really didn't die because there's no way Jesus, this wonderful prophet, could ever die on a cross. The problem with this is we're trusting the Quran written 600 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to be more powerful and authoritative and dependable than the eyewitnesses who were in the environment and saw that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that Jesus had died on that cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, other women, John were at the foot of the cross and they saw Jesus on that cross. They knew it was Jesus. Folks, you've just got to make a decision. Either the Quran is right saying that Jesus never went to the cross or the Bible is right that Jesus went to the cross and died on that cross. They are contradictory to one another. Every philosophy demands that we live by the moral law of non-contradiction. You can't have two opposite truths also be true. I tend to believe the eyewitnesses. I tend to believe, as Pascal, the famous mathematician, said, the one who's willing to have his throat, throat cut for what he believed. The disciples were willing to die because they knew Jesus had died and had been raised from the dead. Other people suggest that the New Testament was uh, copied pagan resurrection stories. Uh, If any of you know your history, you know that Marduk and uh, Adonis and other mythological pagan figures died and were raised from the dead, and they became deities in other world's religions. Uh, the, The problem you have with this particular perspective is, first of all, the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses in the New Testament said that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Secondly, they were willing to suffer martyrdom for that belief that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And thirdly, I would suggest to you that there are echoes of God in the universe, as we began this message with, and every person everywhere wants to believe in eternity wants to believe there's life after this one, wants to believe we'll be reunited. And I believe with all our loved ones, and I believe God has placed that eternity within all of our hearts, every single one of us, in every culture, everywhere. So naturally, there would be mythological pagan stories about life, death, and resurrection to fulfill that hope in their hearts. Those stories about Marduk and Adonis aren't true, but the story about Jesus is true. Why? We can rely upon the testimony of the eyewitnesses who were willing to die because they'd seen Jesus alive. And for those of you who are skeptics, let me ask you a few questions right now. First of all, how do you explain the transformation of the disciples? Let's just look at three of them. For example, the life of Peter. He was a a coward. He had run away from Jesus, but then he experienced the resurrected Jesus. And Peter then becomes the pillar of the Jewish church. He becomes a leader in the church. And the legend has it that Peter died in Rome, crucified upside down because he loved Jesus so much. Why would Peter go from a coward to the pillar of the church unless he had seen a resurrected Jesus? Or what about James, the half-brother of Jesus? He was one of Jesus' family that came to Jesus continually and said, you're causing all kinds of problems. You need to come home. You know, mama's worried about you. You're going to get yourself killed. Stop this foolishness. And then this same James, who was a skeptic, not only writes the book of James in the New Testament, not only becomes the leader of the Jerusalem Christian church, this James was willing to give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why did he go from skeptic? 
skeptic and critic to leader of the church, he'd seen a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Then also look at the Apostle Paul. He actually persecuted Christians. He killed dozens, maybe even hundreds of Christians. What moves this Paul from being a persecutor of the church to the major proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentile world? What caused that to occur? He had seen a resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. How do you skeptics account for the dramatic life change of those disciples and others? Second, what about the massive Jewish social religious changes that occurred right after the resurrection? For example, the Jews worshiped on Shabbat from Friday evening and through all day Saturday. Saturday was their worship day. And suddenly, by the snap of a fingers, with a resurrected Lord Jesus, the early Jewish Christians changed the major worship day of the week from Saturday to Sunday because that was the day the disciples had seen Jesus raised from the dead for the first time. Also, Passover becomes the Lord's Supper in the Christian tradition. There's no more temple sacrifices of the animals. How did this happen? How do you change massively important Jewish societal religious structures in one quick breath that had been in existence for over 1,200 years? How does that happen? It happens because these Christians, these Jewish believers, had seen a resurrected Jesus, and they transformed all their social structures in alignment to who they knew Jesus was. Third question, why did Jesus receive worship? Over and over again throughout the Bible, when people worshiped him, he received it. For example, Thomas, after he realized Jesus was raised from the dead, started worshiping him, and Jesus received that worship. He did not rebuke Thomas and say, don't worship me, I'm a mere man. He received that worship because he knew he was God. Also, what about the forgiveness of sins? Jesus forgave sins over and over again. In John 20, verse 23, he forgave the disciples' sins. He breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. Only God can forgive sins. You you know, I can forgive you for something you did to hurt me, but I can't forgive ultimately how you've hurt God. Only God can do that. And Jesus forgave all of our sins. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio with a conversation about the relationship between our current circumstances and our faith. We'll be right back. In our community, there are countless people at the intersection of homelessness and addiction. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. And for over 80 years, the Rescue Mission has been helping people who struggle with addiction in our community. You know, there are many great programs that offer people struggling with addiction a path to sobriety and recovery. But what comes after someone gets clean? Often those battling addiction have an inconsistent work history or criminal charges. Most have stunted emotional growth. And after they've achieved sobriety, how do they maintain long-term employment? This is where Community Matters Cafe makes a huge impact in their lives. Community Matters Cafe is more than just good food and wonderful house-roasted coffee. It's an extension program of Charlotte Rescue Mission that is transforming lives. And after men and women graduate from Charlotte Rescue Mission's 120-day Rebound Men's and Dove's Nest Women's residential programs, 
they have the option to enroll in the Life Skills Program at Community Matters Cafe. During the six-month program, the students learn a variety of critical life skills in a restaurant setting that help them get and keep long-term employment. Community Matters Cafe is located diagonally opposite the Panther Practice Fields at the corner of Cedar and West First Street. Charlotte Rescue Mission is so grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church in this vital work of transforming lives. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great being with you as well, Jen. Well, David, in this morning's Moment of Hope, you wrote that either our circumstances defines our faith or our faith defines our circumstances. What do you mean by that? Well, Jen, I think another way of saying that is a previous Davidism that we had is you are either focusing on the size of the mountains in your life or you're focusing on the size of your God in your life. Hmm. It's one of the two. Everybody goes through difficult times. Bad circumstances happen to every single one of us. But when they do, notice I said when they do, mm-hmm. not if they do, do we let circumstances define our faith? or vice versa. Do we let the huge size of the mountain overcome our faith, or do we let our huge faith overcome the size of the circumstances? Jesus said that tribulations happen to us all in John 16, but don't forget the second half of this verse where Jesus says, but rejoice, I have overcome the world. And if he lives in us, that means his strength is in us to overcome the circumstances, the mountains, no matter how big they may be, that we are facing. If our life is hidden in Jesus, we believe that he is working in everything for our good and his glory. Therefore, we look at life's circumstances through the lenses of faith, trust, hope, God's perfect and eternal love, and know that our daddy in heaven is in even our worst circumstances working all together for our good and his glory. So again, What's your mind focused on? The size of the problem or the size of your God? The size of the mountain or the size of your God? The difficulty of your circumstances or the greatness of your God? You're focused on one or the other. May I exhort everyone today to focus on the greatness of your God. Don't let your circumstances define your faith. Let your faith define your circumstances. I love this so much. And I'm going to take it back to this micro level. But those those little words, if and when, for me, were that was a game changer just to see that. It's not if you face circumstances that are, are hard. It's when. And I just think us as believers, when we're able to just say, this this was something that I was supposed to walk into, and there's a reason for this, and this is one of those when moments, then we really can lift our eyes to the Lord and ask for His help and His strategy to walk through it. And He will give it to us. And what's interesting in that verse, John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations. Mm-hmm. That's right before He went to the cross. Wow. That's in the upper room discourse. He is within hours of going to the cross. He also said right before that in John 16 and John 15, the pupil is not greater than the master. If I have to go through this, you're going to have to go through this. Jesus himself had to face huge tribulations, but he did so depending totally and completely upon his Father in heaven. Indeed, his last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit 
my spirit, knowing that three days later, that spirit would be enshrouded in a new perfect resurrection body and Jesus would be alive. Wow, so powerful. Thank you so much, David, for these truths today. Thank you, Jen. And listeners, if you would like to receive daily from me a written Moment of Hope, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. Subscribe there free of charge from my heart to yours to give you a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking for God's Spirit to prevail in this season of darkness.